Hello, I'm Paulette Lee, and you're listening to Woman Worthy, real talk about real issues for women over 60. If you're over 60, you're still worthy of being heard. I've been thinking a lot lately about public policy and women, prompted by two current examples. The leak of the U.S. Supreme Court's draft decision to undo Roe v. Wade and return public policy on abortion rights to the states, many of which, and many of whose political candidates, are already set to deny such rights. And then the not unexpected news that the Taliban rulers in Afghanistan are again requiring women to wear head-to-toe clothing in public, quote, wanting our sisters to live with dignity and safety, unquote said the acting minister for the Taliban's vice and virtue ministry. He is a man promoting the very conservative and quasi-religious position, and not just in Islam, that a woman's virtue has to be maintained and demonstrated by how she dresses. In other words, it's her responsibility for how men behave. This approach to male-dominated public policy that controls women is, in my opinion, very disturbing, to say the least. Yet it's hardly new. I recently read a book about Elizabeth Packard, a 19th century American woman who was legally institutionalized by her husband in an insane asylum for disagreeing with him on matters of religion. Her so-called crime was that because she had her own thoughts, she must be insane. She went on to be an effective advocate for the rights of married women and the mentally ill and the mentally sane who were treated as if they were not. So, you may ask, what does this all have to do with us? We're past our childbearing years. We live in the U.S., not Afghanistan, and we live in the 21st century, not the 19th. Well, first of all, many of us have daughters, granddaughters, nieces, and friends of, or soon to be of, childbearing age, so public policy affecting their reproductive rights does, or dare I say, should, affect us. No, we're not being asked to cover from head to toe, but I must confess I I struggle with this. As a feminist and activist in the 1970s and 80s, I joined a whole lot of women in our opposition to women being presented as sex symbols. Now, women TV news anchors all seem to wear tight sleeveless dresses, showing off their body form, though the men don't wear body suits. And recently, I saw in the streets of D.C. a young woman wearing a low-cut top and jeans, of course, with a lot of holes, But the jeans were pulled down on her hips so that her red thong underwear was clearly visible. And and I kept thinking, aren't these messages that say, look at my body, lust after me? But then again, is it her responsibility for how men behave? And no, we no longer can be institutionalized because we dare to disagree with our husbands, even in private. But... Our words and opinions in the public square, and often in the private one as well, are not only often minimized, but as we grow older, considered less relevant. So that's where we come in. We older women. Where are we when it comes to public policy making that affects us? I don't mean just as the beneficiary or victim of that policy, but are we at the table making the policies? 
Public policies come from government at all levels, legislatures, courts, administrative offices, and departments. Of course, the public policy decision-making is influenced by even more entities, to name a few, journalists, media other than journalism, activists, paid lobbyists, artists and writers, professional associations, and the people through all their channels of communication, including marching in the streets and expressing themselves through traditional and social media. In fact, wherever you can find public opinion, you can find someone or someones who are beseeching and besieging government and the courts to pass or make laws that reflect the advocates' interests. And that is where it gets interesting when it comes to senior women. More often than not, the laws and court decisions that directly impact us are not decided by us. The jobs that make up the United States judicial system, lawyers, clerks, paralegals, judges, and other judicial workers, have historically been largely held by men. It wasn't until 1869 that Arabella Mansfield became the first woman lawyer in the nation, 80 years after the judicial system was established. It wasn't until 1928 that Genevieve Rose Klein was the first woman appointed to the federal bench, nearly 140 years after the U.S. court system was established. By the way, if you would like to learn more about the history of women lawyers in the U.S., I recommend the book Rebels at the Bar by Jill Norgren. That's N-O-R-G-R-E-N, Rebels at the Bar. Today, women continue to outnumber men in law school, but they only make up a third of all the lawyers in the country and a third of all the judges at all levels. Sandra Day O'Connor became the first woman Supreme Court Justice in 1981, and she served until her retirement in 2006. To date, there have been only five women Supreme Court Justices. That is 4% of the total throughout American history. As for lawmakers, combining the House of Representatives and the Senate in Congress, that's 539 seats, Women make up just over a quarter of all members, 144. That's the highest percentage in U.S. history, but a far cry from our relative percentage in the population, which, as we know, is more than 50%. At the state level, about 30% of state legislatures are comprised of women. But actually, they hold fewer than half of the legislative seats in every state because Nevada skews the statistic. There, women are 60% of the legislators. Hmm. I wonder if that has anything to do with prostitution and legalized gambling. I, uh, but I digress. Elder law, as it's called in the U.S., is governed by the Older Americans Act, OAA, of 1965. It's also known as Public Law 8973, and it was signed into law by President Lyndon Johnson. It was amended through Public Law 116-131 in March of 2020. The OAA is administered through the Administration on Aging, which is called, um, well, we'll just call it the administration here, an agency of the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services. 
So according to the administration's website, quote, the OAA promotes the well-being of older individuals by providing services and programs designed to help them live independently in their homes and communities. The act also empowers the federal government to distribute funds to the states for supportive services for individuals over the age of 60. Notice there's no specific mention of women here. Within the Administration on Aging, there are the Offices of Supportive Caregiver Services, Nutrition and Health Promotion Programs, Elder Justice, and Adult Protective Services for American Indian, Alaska Natives, and Native Hawaiian Programs, and then also for Long-Term Care Ombudsman Programs. The Act also established the creation of state area agencies on aging, which means, as you probably know, you have one near where you live. The amended version of the Act includes provisions to protect vulnerable elders by strengthening the Long-Term Care Ombudsman Program and elder abuse screening and prevention efforts. It also promotes the delivery of evidence-based programs, such as falls prevention and chronic disease self-management programs. Again, I was struck how these are more end-of-life issues than they are vibrant living issues. I could find nowhere in the Act as amended nor the Congressional Research Service report any specific mention of women. You can find the Act uh, online or the CRS Older Americans Act Overview and Funding Report of April 22, 2021 at gov. That's G-O-V. Typically, OAA programs, projects, and activities are budgeted at more than $2 billion a year. Plus, the last couple of years, they've seen additional monies allocated due to COVID-19. As we know, the elderly are more susceptible to adverse effects and indeed health from the virus and its variants. Moving along with more government entities and acronyms, the Age Discrimination in Employment Act, ADEA, forbids age discrimination against people who are age 40 or older. I look back, 40 was young. It does not protect workers under the age of 40. It's not illegal for an employer or other covered entity to favor an older, older worker over a younger one, even if both workers are age 40 or older. Discrimination can occur when the victim and the person who inflicted the discrimination are both over 40. The law prohibits discrimination in any aspect of employment, including hiring, firing, pay, job assignments, promotions, layoffs, training, benefits, and any other term or condition of employment. It also prohibits the harassment of a person because of his or her age. In next week's episode, though, I'm going to be talking about discrimina uh, discrimination against older women, particularly in the media and performing arts. It might be against the law de jure, but it most certainly happens de facto. Okay, back to public policy. The U.S. Government Accountability Office, or the GAO as it's known, is the 101-year-old nonpartisan office that provides Congress with information on a variety of topics to help lawmakers create and fund legislation. 
In the summer of 2020, the GAO conducted 14 focus groups nationwide on older women and financial security. Frankly, I don't know why some of these studies were even done except to be able to cite them in drafting legislation because we pretty much already know that according to the GAO report, quote, in all 14 focus groups, women described some level of anxiety about financial security in retirement. Many expressed concerns about the future of Social Security and Medicare benefits and the costs of health care and housing. Women in the groups also cited a range of experiences that hindered their retirement security, such as divorce or leaving the workforce before they planned. Women in all 14 focus groups said their lack of personal finance education negatively affected their ability to plan for retirement. Many shared ideas about personal finance education, including the view that it should be incorporated into school curriculum starting in kindergarten and continuing through college and should be available through all phases of life, unquote. Okay, there's a public policy recommendation. While the GAO doesn't directly advocate, plenty of organizations do, or they lobby, for the interests of older adults, though not necessarily specific to older women. There's the National Council on Aging, ncoa.org, and ARPS Public Policy Institute focuses on financial and health security, family, home, and community, and skilled nursing. In the area of training professionals to create and or influence public policy for seniors, the Health and Aging Policy Fellows Program, housed at Columbia University, offers 15 fellowships a year to, quote, create a cadre of leaders who will serve as change agents in health and aging policy to ultimately improve the health care of older adults. The year-long fellowship offers a rich and unique training and enrichment program that is focused on current policy issues, communication skills development, and professional networking opportunities to provide fellows with the experience and skills necessary to help affect policy." The Gerontological Society of America does research and produces white papers, policy statements and reports, as does the National Association of Area Agencies on Aging, Uh but still nothing specific to senior women. There are public influencers or grandfluencers, as those who must do this sort of thing have dubbed them, They affect public opinion, possibly public policy. For example, there are the TV shows Grace and Frankie with senior stars Jane Fonda and Lily Tomlin, and of course the ever-popular Golden Girls, and I'll be talking more about this next week. There are two senior fashionistas who vie for the title of Accidental Icon. Iris Apfel signed as a model in 2019 at age 91 after a successful career in home and textile design. 69-year-old Lynn Slater was a social worker and professor who became a fashion blogger and influencer at age 61. Both women have robust careers now and tremendous followings on social media. And while I recognize the importance of all the policy influencers I've mentioned, I am still trying to figure out what happened to senior women being at the table to make public policy that affects senior women. I simply couldn't find anything here in the U.S. I had to go to Canada to find exactly what I was searching for. Well, 
not literally. Engaging Older Women in Your Community, a Promising Practices Guide for Women's and Senior Serving Organizations, is a 2016 report produced by the Canadian Centre for Elder Law. It's a tool for organizations that's an outcome of their Older Women's Dialogue Project, which engaged 460 older women from one Canadian region, but nine different linguistic communities. The purpose of the project was to close the gap between aging and gender in law and policy and give voice to the experiences of older women. The report, as far as I'm concerned, states the issue perfectly. Quote, law and public policy aimed at improving quality of life for women often occurs without consideration of older women's unique needs. An aging policy rarely reflects a gender analysis. There is also often a disconnection between the women and seniors serving sectors. As a result, policies often neglect the needs of older women. Positive change for older women is only possible if we identify how older women's experiences differ from both those of younger women and older men. As long as older women's experiences and needs are invisible to us, we are powerless to take action to address their pressing needs. However, engaging older women calls for deliberate strategies for inclusion. These strategies are the subject of this guide." Unquote. I love this guide. And if you care about real public policy for older women, I hope you'll also read it and share it and advocate for its approach and adoption within your own circle of influence. Again, it's called Engaging Older Women in Your Community. It's produced by the Canadian Centre for Elder Law. Go to https colon double slash c-n-p-e-a dot c-a and then just do a search for Engaging Older Women. Of course, if you know of U.S. elder law specific to women, please do share with all of us by posting on the Facebook Woman Worthy group page. Thanks for listening, and have a great week. You have been listening to Woman Worthy, real talk about real issues for women over 60. Tune in wherever you receive your podcasts with new episodes every Monday morning. You can leave your comments by downloading the Podbean app to your device and on the Woman Worthy Facebook page. I'm Paulette Lee. I hope you found this program worthy of your time.